Killing Floor, Chapter 1 I was arrested in Eno's diner at 12 o'clock. I was eating eggs and drinking coffee. A late breakfast, not lunch. I was wet and tired after a long walk in heavy rain. All the way from the highway to the edge of town. The diner was small but bright and clean. Brand new, built to resemble a converted railroad car. Narrow, with a long lunch counter on one side and a kitchen bumped way out back. Booths were lining the opposite wall, a doorway where the center booth would be. I was in a booth at a window reading somebody's abandoned newspaper about the campaign for a president I didn't vote for last time and wasn't going to vote for this time. Outside the rain had stopped, but the glass was still pebbled with bright drops. I saw the police cruisers pull in fast in the gravel lot. They were moving fast and crunched to a stop. Light bars flashing and popping. Red and blue light and the rain drops on my window. Doors burst open, policemen jumped out. Two from each car, weapons ready. Two revolvers, two shotguns. This was heavy stuff. One revolver and one shotgun ran to the back. One of each rushed to the door. I just sat and watched them. I knew who was in the diner. A cook in the back, two waitresses, two old men, and me. This operation was for me. I had been in town less than half an hour. The other five had probably been here all their lives. Any problem with any of them, and an embarrassed sergeant would have shuffled in. He would have been apologetic. He would mumble to them. He would ask them to come down to the station house. So the heavy weapons and the rush weren't for any of them. They were for me. I crammed my eggs into my mouth and trapped a five under the plate. Folded the abandoned newspaper into a square and shoved it into my coat pocket. Kept my hands above the table and drained my cup. The guy with the revolver stayed at the door. He went into a crouch and pointed the weapon two-handed at my head. The guy with the shotgun approached close. These were fit, lean boys, neat and tidy. Textbook moves. The revolver at the door could cover a room with a degree of accuracy. The shotgun up close could splatter me all over the window. The other way around would have been a mistake. The revolver could miss in close quarters struggle and a long-range shotgun blast from the door would kill the arresting officer and the old guy in the rear booth as well as me. So far they were doing it right. No doubt about that. They had the advantage. No doubt about that either. The tight booth trapped me. I was too hemmed in to do too much. I spread my hands on the table and the officer with the shotgun came near. Freeze! Police! He screamed. He was screaming as loud as he could, blowing off his tension and trying to scare me. 
textbook moves. Plenty of sound and fury to soften the target. I raised my hands. The guy with the revolver started in from the door. The guy with the shotgun came closer. Too close. Their first error. If I had to, I might have lunged for the shotgun barrel and forced it up. A blast into the ceiling, perhaps an elbow into the policeman's face, and the shotgun could have been mine. The guy with the revolver had a narrowed angle, and he couldn't risk hitting his partner. It could have ended badly for both of them. But I just sat there, hands raised. The guy with the shotgun was still screaming and jumping. Out here on the floor, he yelled. I slid out of the booth and extended my wrist to the officer with a revolver. I wasn't going to lie on the floor. Not for these country boys. Not if they blot their whole police department with howitzers. The guy with the revolver was a sergeant. He was pretty calm. The shotgun covered me as the sergeant holstered his revolver and unclipped the handcuffs from his belt and clicked them on my wrists. The backup team came through the kitchen. They walked around the lunch corner, took up a position behind me. They patted me down. Very thorough. I saw the sergeant acknowledge the shakes of their heads. No weapon. The backup guys each took an elbow. The shotgun still covered me. The sergeant stepped up in front. He was a compact, athletic white man, lean and tanned. My age, the acetate nameplate above his shirt pocket read Baker, and he looked up at me. You are under arrest for murder, he said. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used as evidence against you. You have the right to representation by an attorney. Should you be unable to afford an attorney, one will be appointed to you by the state of Georgia free of charge. Do you understand these rights? It was a fine rendition of the Miranda. He spoke clearly. He didn't read it from a card. He spoke like he knew what it meant and why it was important to him and to me. I didn't respond. Do you understand your rights? He said again. Again, I didn't respond. Long experience had taught me that absolute silence is the best way. Say something and it can be misheard, misunderstood, misinterpreted. It can get you convicted. It can get you killed. Silence upsets the arresting officer. He has to tell you silence is your right, but he hates it if you exercise that right. I was being arrested for murder, but I said nothing. Do you understand your rights? The guy called Baker asked me again. Do you speak English? I was calm. I said nothing. He remained calm. He had the calm of a man whose moment of danger had finally passed. He would just drive me to the station house and then I would become someone else's problem. He glanced around at his three fellow officers. Okay, make a note. He said nothing. Let's go. I was walked towards the door. At the door we formed a single file. First Baker, then the guy with the shotgun walking backward, still with a big black barrel pointing at me. His nameplate read Stevenson. 
He too was a medium white man in good shape. His weapon looked like a drain pipe, pointing at my gut. Behind me were the backup guys. I was pushed through the door with a hand flat on my back. Outside in the gravel, the heat was turning up in the morning. It must have rained all night and most of the morning. Now the sun was blasting away and the ground was steaming. Normally this would be a dusty hot place. Today it was steaming with that wonderful heady aroma of drenched pavement under hot noon sun. I stood face up to the sun and inhaled as the officers regrouped. One at each elbow for the short walk to the cars. Stevenson still on the ball with the pump action. At the first car he skipped backward a step as Baker opened the rear door. My head was pushed down. I was nudged into the car with a neat hip-to-hip -hip contact from the left-hand backup. Good moves. In a town this far from anywhere, surely it was a result of a lot of training rather than a lot of experience. I was alone in the back of, car, of the car. A thick glass partition divided the space. The front doors were still open. The front doors were still open. Open. Baker and Stevenson got in. Baker drove. Stevenson was twisting around, keeping me under observation. Nobody talked. The backup car followed. The cars were new, quiet and smooth handling, clean and cool inside. No ingrained traces of desperate and pathetic people riding where I was sitting. I looked out the, out the window, Georgia. I saw rich land, heavy, damp red earth, very long straight narrows of low bushes in the fields, peanuts maybe, belly crops but valuable to the grower or to the owner. Did people own their land here? Or did giant corporations and or did giant corporations? I didn't know. The drive to town was short. The car hissed over the smooth soaked tarmac. After a mile and a half I saw two neat buildings, both new, both widely both tidy lands with tidy landscaping. The police station and the firehouse. They stood alone together behind a wide lawn with the statue, north edge of town. Attractive country architecture on a generous budget. Roads were smooth, tarmacked, sidewalks were red blocks. 300 yards south I could see a blinding white church steeple behind the small huddle of buildings. I could see flagpoles, awnings, crisp paint, green lawns. Everything refreshed by the heavy rain. Now steaming and somehow intense in the heat. A prosperous community, built, I guess, on prosperous farm incomes and high taxes on the commuters who worked up in Atlanta. Stevenson start, stared at me as the car showed to, slowed to a yawn into the approach to the station house, a wide semicircle of a driveway. I read on a low masonry sign, Margrave Police Headquarters. I thought, should I be worried? I was under arrest in a town where I'd never been before apparently for murder. But I knew two things. First, they couldn't prove something that hadn't happened if it hadn't happened. And secondly, 
I hadn't killed anybody. Not in their town, and not for a long time anyway. Chapter 2 We pulled up at the doors of the long, low building. Baker got out of the car and looked up and down along the frontage. The backup guys stood by. Stevenson walked around the back of our car, took up a position opposite of Baker, pointed the shotgun at me. This was a good team. Baker opened my door. Okay, okay, let's go, he said. Almost a whisper. He was bouncing off the balls of his feet, scanning the area. I pivoted slowly and twisted out of the car. The handcuffs didn't help. Even hotter now. I stepped forward and waited. The backup fell in behind me. Ahead of me was the station house entrance. There was a long marble lintel, crispy, crisply engraved, town of Margrave Police Headquarters. Below it were plate glass doors. Baker pulled one open. It sucked against the rubber seals. The backup pushed me through. The door sucked shut behind me. Inside it was cool again. Everything was white and chrome. Lights were fluorescent. It looked like a bank or an insurance office. There was carpet. A desk, a desk sergeant stood behind the long reception counter. The way the place looked, he should have said, How may I help you, sir? But he said nothing. He just looked at me. Behind him was a huge open plan space. A dark-haired woman in uniform was sitting at a wide, low desk. She had been doing paperwork on a keyboard. Now she was looking at me. I stood there, an officer on each elbow. Stevenson was backed up against the reception counter. His shotgun was pointed at me. Baker stood there, looking at me. The desk sergeant and the woman in uniform were looking at me. I looked back at them. Then I was walked to the left. They stopped me in front of a door. Baker swung it open and I was pushed into a room. It was an interview facility. No windows, a white table and three chairs. Carpet. In the top corner of the room, a camera. The air in the room was set very cold and I was still wet from the rain. I stood there and Baker ferreted into every cop pocket. My belongings made a small pile on the table. A roll of cash, some coins, receipts, tickets, scraps. Baker checked the newspaper and left it in my pocket, glanced at my watch and left it on my wrist. He wasn't interested in those things. Everything else was swept into a large Ziploc bag, a bag made for people with more in their pockets than I carry. The bag had a white panel printed on it. Stevenson wrote some kind of number on the panel. Baker told me to sit down. Then they all left the room. Stevenson carried the bag with my stuff in it. They went out and closed the door, and I heard a lock turn in the lock assembly. It had a heavy, well-greased sound. The sound of precision. The sound of big, steel locks. It sounded like a lock that would keep me in. I figured they would leave me isolated for a while. It usually happens that way. 
Isolation causes an urge to talk. An urge to talk can become an urge to confess. A brutal arrest followed by an hour's isolation is a pretty good strategy. But I figured wrong. They hadn't planned an hour's isolation. Maybe their second slight tactical mistake. Baker unlocked the door and stepped back in. He carried a plastic cup of coffee. Then he signaled the uniformed woman into the room, the one I had seen earlier at the desk in the open area. The heavy lock clicked behind her. She carried a metal flight case which she set on the table. She clicked it open and took out a long black number holder. In it were white plastic numbers. She handed it to me with that brusque, apologetic sympathy that dental nurses, nurses use. I took it in my cuffed hands, squinted down to make sure it was the right way, up, and held it under my chin. The woman took an ugly camera out of the case and sat opposite of me. She rested her elbows on the table to brace the camera, sitting forward. Her breasts rest on the edge of the table. This was a good-looking woman. Dark hair, great eyes. I stared at her and smiled. The camera clicked and flashed. Before she could ask, I turned sideways on the chair for the profile. I held the long number against my shoulder and stared at the wall. The camera clicked and flashed again. I turned back and held out the number, two-handed because of the cuffs. She took it from me with that pursed grin which says, yes, it's unpleasant, but it's necessary. Like a dental nurse. Then she took out fingerprint gear. A crisp 10 card, already labeled with a number. The thumb spaces are always too small. This one had a reverse side with two squares for palm prints. The handcuffs made the process difficult. Baker didn't offer to remove them. The woman inked my hands. Her fingers were smooth and cool. No wedding band. Afterwards, she handed me a wad of tissues. The ink came off very easily. Some kind of new stuff I'd never seen before. The woman unloaded the camera and put the film in with the prints and card on the table. She repacked the camera into the flight case. Baker rapped on the door. The lock clicked again. The woman picked up her stuff. Nobody spoke. The woman left the room. Baker stayed in there with me. He shut the door and locked it with the same greased click. Then he leaned on the door and looked at me. My chief's coming on down, he said. You're going to have to talk to him. We've got a situation here. Got to be cleared up. I said nothing to him. Talking, talking to me wasn't going to clear up any situation for anybody. But the guy was acting civilized, respectful. So I set him a test. Held my hands out toward him. An unspoken request to unlock the cuffs. He stood still for a moment and then took out the key and unlocked them. Clipped them back on his belt. Looked at me. I looked back. Dropped my arms to my side. No grateful exhalation. No rueful rubbing of my wrists. I didn't want a relationship with this guy. But I did speak. Okay, I said. Let's go meet your chief. It was the first time I'd spoken since ordering breakfast. Now Baker was the one who looked grateful. 
He rapped twice on the door and it was unlocked from the outside. He opened it up and signaled me through. Stevenson was waiting with his back to the large open area. The shotgun was gone. The backup crew was gone. Things were calming down. They formed up, one on each side. Baker gripped my elbow lightly. We walked down to the side of the open area and came to a door at the back. Stevenson pushed it open and we walked through into a large office. Lots of rosewood all over it. A fat guy sat at a big rosewood desk. Behind him were a couple big flags. There was a stars and stripes with gold fringe on the left and what I guessed was the Georgia State flag on the right. On the wall between the flags was a clock. It was a big old round thing framed in mahogany. It looked like it had decades of polish on it. I figured it must be the clock from whoever the station house they bulldozed to build this place. I figured the architect had used it to give a sense of history to the new building. It was showing nearly 12.30. The fat guy at the desk looked up at me, and I was pushed towards him. I sat at him, saw him look at me blankly, like he was trying to place me. He looked again harder. Then he sneered at me, and spoke in a wheezing gasp, which gasp which could have been a shout if it weren't strangled by bad lungs. Get your ass in that chair and keep your filthy mouth shut, he said. This fat guy was a surprise. He looked like a real asshole, opposite to what I'd seen so far. Baker and his arrest team were business, professional and efficient. The fingerprint woman had been decent, but this fat police chief was a waste of space. Thin, dirty hair, sweating despite the chilly air. The blotchy red and gray complexion of an unfit, overweight mess. Blood pressure sky high. Arteries hard as rocks. He didn't look halfway competent. My name is Morrison, he wheezed, as if I cared. I am chief police of the department down here in Margrave. And you are a murdering outside bastard. You've come down here to my town, and you've messed up right here on Mr. Kleiner's private property. So now, you're going to make a full confession to my chief of detectives. He stopped and looked up at me, like he was still trying to place me, or like he was waiting for a response. He didn't get one. So he jabbed his finger at me. And then you're going to jail, he said. And then you're going to the chair. And then I'm going to take a dump on your shitty little pauper's grave. He yelled back his, out of his chair and looked away from me. I deal with this myself, he said, but I'm a busy man. He walled it out from behind the desk. I was standing there between his desk and the door. As he crabbed by, he stopped. His fat nose was about the level with the middle of my button on my coat. He was still looking up at me like he was puzzled by something. I've seen you before, he said. Where is it? He glanced at Baker and then at Stevenson, like he was expecting them to note what he was saying when he was saying it. I've seen this guy before, he told them. He slammed the office door and I was left waiting with the two cops until the chief of detectives swung in. A tall black guy, not old, but graying and balding, just enough to give him a, a patrician air. 
brisk and confident, well-dressed in an old-fashioned tweed suit, moleskin vest, shined shoes. This good guy looked like a chief of police should look. He signaled Baker and Stevenson out of the office, closed the door behind him, sat down at the desk and waved me to the opposite chair. He rattled open a drawer and pulled out a cassette recorder, raised it high arm's length to pull out the tangle of cords, plugged in the power to the microphone, inserted a tape, pressed record and flicked the microphone with his fingernail. Stopped the tape and wound it back, pressed play, heard the thunk of his nail, nodded, wound it back again and pressed record. I sat and watched him. For a moment there was silence, just a faint hum, the air, the lights, or the computer, or the recorder were whirling slowly. I could hear the slow tick of the old clock. It made a patient sound, like it was prepared to tick on forever, no matter what I chose to do. And then the guy sat in his chair and looked hard at me. Did the steeples fingered thing, like tall, elegant people do. Rat, he said. We've got a few questions, don't we? The voice was deep, like a rumble. Not a southern accent. He looked and sounded like a Boston banker, except he was black. My name is Finley, he said. My rank is captain, and I am the chief of this department's detective bureau. I understand you have been appraised of your rights. You have not yet confided, confirmed that you understood them. Before we go any further, we must peruse that preliminary matter. Not a Boston banker, more like a Harvard guy. I understand my rights, I said. He nodded. Good, he said. I'm glad about that. Where's your lawyer? I don't need a lawyer, I said. You're charged with murder, he said. You need a lawyer. We'll provide one, you know, free of charge. Do you want us to provide you one, free of charge? No, I don't need a lawyer, I said. The guy called Finley stared at me over his fingers for a long moment. Okay, he said, but you're going to have to sign a release. You know, you've been advised that you may have a lawyer and will provide one at no cost yourself, but you'll absolutely do not want one. Okay, I said. He shuffled a form from another drawer and checked his watch to enter the date and time. He slid the form across to me. A large printed cross marked the line where I was supposed to sign. He slid me a pen. I signed and slid the form back. He studied it, placed it in a buff folder. I can't read that signature, he said. So for the record, we'll start with your name, your address, and your date of birth. There was a silence. I looked at him. This was a stubborn guy. Probably 45. You don't get to be chief of detectives in a Georgia jurisdiction if you're 45 and black, except if you're a stubborn guy. No percentage in jerking him around. I drew a breath. My name is Jack Reacher, I said. No middle name. No address. He wrote it down. Not much to write. I told him my date of birth. Okay, Mr. Reacher, Finley said. As I said... We have a lot of questions. I've glanced through your personal effects. 
You are carrying no ID at all, no driver's license, no credit cards, no nothing. You have no address, so you say. So I'm asking myself, who is this guy? He didn't wait for any kind of comment on that for me. Who was the guy with the shaved head, he asked me. I didn't answer. I was watching the big clock, waiting for the minute hand to move. Tell me what happened, he said. I had no idea what happened. No idea at all. Something had happened to somebody, but not me. I sat there. Didn't answer. What is pluribus? Finley asked. I looked at him and shrugged. The United States motto, I said. E pluribus unum, adopted 1776 by the Second Continental Congress. Right? He just grunted at me. Carried on looking straight at him. I figured this was the type of guy who might answer questions. What is this about? I asked him. Silence again. His turn to look at me. I could see him looking and thinking about whether to answer me and how. What is this about? I asked him again. He sat back and steepled his fingers. You know what this is about, he said. Homicide. With some very disturbing features. Homicide. With some very disturbing features. Victim was found this morning up at the Kleiner warehouse. North end of the county road up in the highway near the Cloverleaf. Witnesses reported a man seen walking away from that location. Shortly after 8 o'clock this morning, description given was that of a white man, very tall, wearing a long black overcoat, fair hair, no hat, and no baggage. Silence again. I'm a white man. I am very tall. My hair is fair. I was sitting there wearing a black long coat. I didn't have a hat or a bag. I had been walking on that county road for the best part of four hours this morning, from 8 until about 11.45. How long is that county road? I asked. From the highway all the way down to here. Finley thought about it. Maybe 14 miles, I guess, he said. Right, I said. I walked all the way down from the highway into town. 14 miles, maybe. Plenty of people must have seen me. Doesn't mean I did anything to anybody. He didn't respond. I was getting curious about this situation. Is that your neighborhood? I asked him. All the way over at the highway? Yes, it is, he said. Jurisdiction issue is clear. No way out here for you there, Mr. Reacher. The town limit extends 14 miles right up to the highway. The warehouse out there is mine, no doubt about that. He waited. I nodded and carried on. Kleina built that place five years ago, he said. You heard of him? I shook my head. How should I have heard of him? I said. I've never been here before. He's a big deal around here, Finley said. His operation out there pays a lot of our taxes does a lot of good. A lot of revenue and a lot of benefit for the town without a lot of mess because it's so far away, right? So we try to take care of them. But now, it's a homicide scene and you've got some explaining to do. The guy was doing his job, but 
he was wasting my time. Okay, Finley, I said. I'll make a statement describing every little thing I did since I entered your lousy town limits until I got hauled here in the middle of my damned breakfast. If you can make anything of it, I'll give you a damn medal. Because all I did all I did was to place one foot in front of the other for nearly four hours in the pouring rain all the way to your precious fourteen damn miles. That was the longest speech I had made in six months. Finley sat and gazed at me. I watched him struggling with my with any detective's basic dilemma. His gut told him I might not be his man, but I was sitting right there in front of him. So what should a detective do? I let him ponder. Tried to time it right with a nudge to the right direction. I was going to say something about the real guy running around out there while he was wasting his time in here with me. That would feed his insecurity. But he jumped first in the wrong direction. No statements, he said. I'll ask the questions and you'll answer them. You're Jack Nunreacher. No address, no ID. What, are you a vagrant? I sighed. Today was Friday. The big clock showed it was already more than half over. This guy Finley was going to go through all the hoops with this. I was going to spend the weekend in a cell. Probably get out Monday. I am not a vagrant, Finley, I said. I'm a hobo. Big difference. He shook his head slowly. Don't get smart with me, Richa, he said. You're in deep shit. Bad things happened up there. Our witnesses saw you leaving the scene. You're a stranger with no ID and no story. So don't get smart with me. He was still just doing his job but he was still wasting my time. I wasn't leaving a homicide scene, I said. I was walking down a damn road. There's a difference, right? People leaving a homicide scene tends to run and hide. They don't walk straight down the road. What's wrong with walking down a road? People walk down roads all the damn time, don't they? Finley leaned forward and shook his head. No, he said. Nobody has walked the length of that road since the invention of the automobile. So, why no address? So, why no address? Where are you from? Answer the questions. Let's get this done. Okay, Finley. Let's get this done. I don't have an address because I don't live anywhere. Maybe one day I'll live somewhere and then I'll have an address. And I'll send you a picture of the postcard. And you can put it in your damn address book since you seem so damn concerned about it. Finley gazed at me and reviewed his options. He elected to go the patient route. Patient, but stubborn, like he couldn't be deflected. Where are you from? he asked. What is your last address? What exactly do you mean when you say where am I from? I asked. His lips were clamped. I was getting him bad temper too, but he stayed patient, laced the patience with any icy sarcasm. Okay, he said, you don't understand my question, so let me try to make it clear. What I mean is, where were you born, or where have you lived for the majority of the, your life in which you instinctively regard as a per as predominant in social or cultural context.
I just looked at him. I'll give you an example, he said. I myself was born and educated in Boston and subsequently worked there for 22 years. So I would say, and I think you would agree, that I came from Boston. I was right. A Harvard guy. A Harvard guy running out of patience. Okay, I said. You've asked the questions. I'll answer them. But let me tell you something. I'm not your guy. By Monday, you'll know I'm not your guy. So do yourself a favor. Don't stop looking. Finley was fighting a smile. He nodded gravely. Oh, I appreciate your advice, he said. And your concern for my career. You're welcome, I said. Go on, he said. Okay, I said. According to your fancy definition, I don't come from anywhere. I come from a place called military. I was born on a U.S. Army base in West Berlin. My old man was Marine Corps, and my mother was a French civilian he met in Holland. They got married in Korea. Finley nodded made a note. I was a military kid, I said. Show me a list of U.S. bases all around the world, and that's a list of where I lived. I did high school in two dozen different countries, and I did four years up at West Point. Go on, Finley said. I stayed in the Army, I said. Military police. I served and lived all over the bases all over again. Then, Finley, after 36 years of first being an officer's kid and then being an officer myself, suddenly there's no need for a great big army anymore because the Soviets have gone belly up. So, hooray, we get the peace dividend, which for you means your taxes get spent on something else, but for me means... I'm a 36-year-old, unemployed, ex-military policeman getting called a vagrant by a smug civilian bastard who wouldn't last five minutes in the world I survived in. He thought for a moment. Wasn't impressed. Continue, he said. I shrugged at him. So right now I'm just out enjoying myself, I said. Maybe eventually I'll find something to do. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll settle in somewhere. Maybe I won't. But right now, I'm not looking to. He nodded. Jotted some more notes. When did you leave the army? He asked. Six months ago, I said. April. Have you worked at all since then? He asked. You're joking, I said. When was the last time... When was the last time you looked for work? April, he mimicked. Six months ago, I got this job. Well, good for you, Finley, I said. I couldn't think of anything else to say. Finley gazed at me for a moment. What have you been living on? he asked. What rank did you hold? Major, I said. They give you a severance pay when they kick you out. Still got most of it. Trying to make it last, you know. A long silence. Finley drummed a rhythm with the wrong end of his pen. So, let's talk about the last 24 hours, he said. I sighed. Now I was headed for trouble. 
I came up on the Greyhound bus, I said. I got off at the county road, 8 o'clock in the morning. Walked down into town, reached that diner, ordered breakfast, and I was eating it when your guys came in and hauled me in. You got business here? He asked. I shook my head. I'm out of work, I said. I haven't got any business anywhere. He wrote that down. Where did you get on the bus? He asked me. In Tampa, I said. Left at midnight last night. Tampa and Florida, he said. I nodded. He rattled open another drawer, pulled out a Greyhound schedule, rifled through it, and opened it along and looked at it with a long brown finger down a page. This was a very thorough guy. He looked across at me. That's an express bus, he said. Runs straight through North Atlanta. Arrives there at 9 o'clock in the morning. Doesn't stop here at 8. I shook my head. I asked the driver to stop, I said. He said he shouldn't, but he did. Stopped specially to let me off. You been around here before, he said. I shook my head again. Got family down here? He asked. Not down here, I said. You got family anywhere? He asked. A brother up in D.C., I said. Works for the Treasury Department. You got friends down here in Georgia? He asked. No, I said. Finley wrote it all down, and then there was a long silence. I knew for sure what the next question was going to be. So why? He asked. Why get off the bus at an unscheduled stop to walk 14 miles in the rain to a place you had absolutely no reason to go? That was the killer question. Finley had picked it out right away. So would a prosecutor. And I had no real answer. What can I tell you? I said. It was an arbitrary decision. I was restless. I have to be somewhere, right? But why here? He asked. I don't know, I said. Guy next to me had a map and I picked this place out. I wanted to get off the main drags. Thought maybe I could loop around down towards the gulf further west maybe. You picked this place out, Finley said. Don't give me that shit. How could you pick this place out? It's just a name. It's a dot on the map. You must have had a reason. I nodded. I thought I'd come out and look for Blind Blake, I said. And who the hell is Blind Blake? He asked. I watched him evaluating the scenarios like a chess computer evaluates moves. Was Blind Blake my friend, my enemy, my accomplice, conspirator, mentor, creditor, debtor, my next victim? Blind Blake was a guitar player, I said. Died 60 years ago, maybe murdered. My brother brought a record... <clears throat> My brother bought a record. Sleep Note said it happened in Margrave. He wrote me about it. Said he was through here a couple times in the spring. Some kind of business. So I thought I'd come down here and check the story out. Finley looked blank. It must have sounded pretty thin to him. It would have sounded pretty thin to me, too, in his position. You came here looking for a guitar player, he said. A guitar player who died 60 years ago. Why, are, are you a guitar player? No, I said. 
How did your brother rat you, he asked, when you got no address? He wrote my old unit, I said. They forwarded my mail to my bank, where I put my severance pay. They sent it to me when I wire them for cash. He shook his head, made a note. The Midnight Greyhound out of Tampa, right? He said. I nodded. Got your bus ticket? He asked. In the property bag, I guess, I said. I remembered ba Baker bagging it all up, all my junk, Stevenson tagging it. Would the bus driver remember? Finley asked. Maybe, I said. It was a special stop. I had to ask him. I became like a spectator. The situation became abstract. My job had not been any different than Finley's. I had an odd feeling of conferring with him about somebody else's case, like we were colleagues discussing a knotty problem. Why aren't you working? Finley asked. I shrugged. Tried to explain. Because I don't want to work, I said. I worked 13 years, got me nowhere. I feel like I tried their way, and now to hell with them. Now I'm going to do it my way. Finley sat and just gazed at me. Do you have, did you have any trouble in the army? He said. No more than you did in Boston. I said. He was surprised. What do you mean by that? You did 20 years in Boston, I said. That's what you told me, Finley. So why are you down here in this no-account little place? You should be taking you should be taking your own pension, going out on fishing trips, Cape Cod or wherever. What's your story? That's my business, Mr. Reacher, he said. Answer my questions. I shrugged. Ask the army, I said. I will, he said. You can be damn sure of that. Did you get an honorable discharge? Would they give me a severance if I hadn't, I said. Why should I believe they gave you a dime? He said, you look like a damn vagrant. Honorable discharge, yes or no? Yes, I said, of course. He made another note, thought for a while. How did it feel, huh, being let go? He said. I thought about it, shrugged at him. Didn't make me feel anything, I said. Made me feel like I was in the army. And then now, I'm not in the army. Do you feel bitter? He said. Let down? No, I said. Should I? No problems at all, he asked. Like there had to be something. I felt like I had to give him some kind of answer. But I couldn't think of anything. I had been in the service since the day I was born. Now I was out. Being out felt great. Felt like freedom. Like all my life I had a slight headache, not noticing until it was gone. My only problem was making a living. How to make a living without giving up the freedom, it's not an easy trick. I hadn't earned a cent in six months. That was my only problem. But I wasn't about to tell Finley that. He'd see it as motive. He'd think I decided to, he'd think I decided to bankroll my vagrant lifestyle by robbing people at warehouses and then killing them. I guess the transition is hard to manage, I said, especially since I had the life as a kid, too. Finley nodded, considered my answer. 
Why you in particular? He said. Did you volunteer to muster out? I never volunteer for anything, I said. Soldier's basic rule. Another silence. Did you specialize? He asked. In the service? General duties initially, I said. That's the system. Then I handled secrets security for five years. In the last six years, I handled something else. Let him ask. What was that? He asked. Homicide investigation, I said. Finley leaned back, grunted, did the steepled fingers thing again. He gazed at me and exhaled, sat forward, pointed a finger at me. Right, he said. I'm going to check you out. We've got your prints, but we should be on file with the Army, and we'll get your service record, all of it. All the details. We'll check on the bus company, check your ticket, check the driver, find the passengers. If what you say is right, we'll know soon enough. If it's true, it may let you off the hook. Obviously, certain details of time and methodology will determine the matter. Those details are as yet unclear. He paused and exhaled again, looked right at me. In the meantime, I'm a cautious man, he said. On the face of it, you look bad. A drifter, a vagrant, no address, no history. Your store may be bullshit. You may be a fugitive. You may have been murdering people left and right in a dozen different states. I just don't know. I can't be expected to give you the benefit of the doubt. Right now, why should I not have any doubt? You stay locked up until we know for sure, okay? It's what I expected. It's exactly what I would have done. But I just looked at him and shook my head. You're a cautious guy, I asked. That's for damn sure. He looked back at me. If I'm wrong, I'll buy you lunch Monday, he said, at Eno's place to make up for today. I shook my head again. I'm not looking for a buddy down here, I said. Finley just shrugged. Clicked off the tape recorder, rewound, took out the tape, wrote on it. He buzzed the intercom on the big Rosewood desk. Asked Baker to come back in. I waited. It was still cold. But I had finally dried out. The rain had fallen out of the Georgia sky and it soaked into me. Now it had been sucked out by the dry office air. A dehumidifier had sucked it out and piped it away. Baker knocked and entered. Finley told him to escort me to the cells. Then he nodded to me. It was a nod which said, If you turn out not to be the guy, remember I was just doing my job. I nodded back. Mine was a nod which said, While you're covering your ass, there's a killer running outside there. The cell block was really just a white alcove off the main open plan squad room. It was divided into three separate cells which vert with vertical bars. The front wall was all bars. A gate section hinged into each cell. The metalwork had a fabulous dull glitter, looked like titanium. Each cell was carpeted, but totally empty. No furniture or bed ledge, just a high-budget version of the old-fashioned holding pens you used to see. No overnight accommodations here? I asked Baker. No way, he replied. You'll be moved to the state facility later. Bus comes at six. Six. Bus brings you back Monday. 
He clanged the gate shut and turned his key. I heard bolts socket all the way around the room, electric. I took the newspaper out of my pocket, took off my coat, and rolled it up. I lay flat on the floor and crammed the coat under my head. Now I was truly pissed off. I was going to prison for the weekend. I wasn't staying in a station house cell. Not that I had other plans, but I knew about civilian prisons. A lot of my a lot of army deserters end up in the civilian prisons for one thing or another. The system notifies the army. Military policemen get sent to bring them back, so I'd seen civilian prisons. They didn't make me wild with enthusiasm. I lay angrily listening to the hum of the squad room. Phones rang, keyboards pattered, the tempo rose and fell, officer moved about, talking low. Then I tried to finish the reading the borrowed newspaper. He was full of shit about the president and his campaign to get himself elected again for a second term. The old guy was down in Pensacola on the Gulf Coast. He was aiming to get the budget balanced before his grandchildren's heir turned white. He was cutting things like a guy with a machete, machete was blasting his way through a jungle. Down in Pensacola, he was sticking to the Coast Guard. They'd been running an initiative for the last 12 months. They'd been out and forced like a curved shield off of Florida's coast every day for a year, boarding and searching all marine traffic. They didn't like the smell of it. It had been announced with the enormous it had been announced with enormous fanfare. And then and it had been successful beyond their wildest dreams. They'd seen they'd seized all kinds of stuff, drugs mostly, but guns as well, illegal migrants from Haiti to Cuba. The interdiction was reducing crime all over the states months later and thousands of miles down the line. A big success. So it was being abandoned. It was very expensive to run. The Coast Guard's budget was in serious deficit. The president said he couldn't increase it. In fact, he'd have to cut it. The economy was a mess. Nothing else he could do. So the, in so the interdiction initiative would be canceled in seven days' time. The president was trying to come across like a statesman. Law enforcement big shots were angry because they figured prevention was better than cure. Washington insiders were happy because 50 cents spent on beat cops was much more visible than two bucks spent on the ocean 2,000 miles away from the voters. The arguments flew back and forth, and in the smudgy photographs, the president was just beaming away like a statesman. There was nothing that he could do. I stopped reading because it was just making me angrier. To calm down, I ran some music through my head. The chorus and smokestack lightning, the howling wolf version. It puts a it puts a wonderful strangled cry on the end of the first line. They say you need to ride the rails for a while to understand the traveling blues. They're wrong. To understand the traveling blues, you need to be locked up down somewhere in a cell, or in the army. Some place where you're caged. Some place where smokestack lightning looks like a faraway beacon of impossible freedom. I lay there with my coat as a pillow and listened to the music in my head. At the end of the third chorus, I fell asleep. I woke up again when Baker started kicking the bars. They made a dull ringing sound like a funeral bell. Baker stood there with Finley. They looked down at me and I stayed on the floor. I was comfortable down there. Where did you say you were at midnight last night? Finley asked me. Getting on the bus in Tampa, I said. We've got new witnesses, Finley said. He saw you at the warehouse facility last night. 
hanging around at midnight. Total crap, Finley, I, I said. Impossible. Who the hell is this new witness? The witness is the chief is Chief Morrison, Finley said. The chief of police. He says he was sure he'd seen you before. Now he remembered where. Alright. That is the end of chapters 1 and 2 of Lee Child's Killing Floor for Reacher Storytime. Tune in maybe tomorrow. I'm already losing my voice. And uh, we will continue Killing Floor. Thanks for listening.